0: who's black, who's white, and who cares? One researcher challenges us to re-examine our self-identity. She explores the extent to which historical definitions of race continue to shape contemporary racial identities and lived experiences of racial difference. Through a series of interviews and profiles, we come to realize race is not black and white. The book, One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. The researcher, Yaba Blay, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get, get it. there yeah.
1: This is Alexis, and
0: you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Hello, Alexis, my dear friend. How you Hi, doing? Friend. I'm tired. Yeah, me too. We I uh, am tired <laughs> we had a little come to moment where we decided we we're going to eat better. <laughs> yeah, we did. Maybe we should read a book about vegetables. That's And a have good like one. a challenge. We've done that before. I don't know if you remember when I was little, you made me do the, um, oh, I got it somewhere too, the South <laughs> Beach diet. I was just a little child. And Stop um, it. I did not make you do that. You made you was me like, do you want to play? And I said, <laughs> okay, I'll play. <laughs> and you had me in the gym with strep throat. You know, I'm very competitive. You are. And we had these streaks of, for real, this was probably like, 20 years ago Um, but uh, we we was like testing who could go to the gym for the longest or so and I was in the gym with strep throat I ain't care nothing about the people on the left to the right I was coughing hacking and running Ah, ah. today you couldn't get away with that I wouldn't even try I care more about um humanity but anyway goodness (laughs) aside from fatigue what's been up with you Oh,
1: nothing. I'm working, more working. I'm in the office three days a week. I think I already said that, but I'm in the office three days a week now. And I got to play um, ping pong. My ping pong partner is back in the office. So um, we got to play on
0: Friday and that was great. I love that. I don't know if y'all know, but Alexis works for like a Ritzy Law office (laughs) and the office is like a country club. So they got Peloton bikes, (laughs) private showers um, and a whole coffee shop, self-serve coffee shop is really cool. Anyway, uh, well, that's it's nice for you. How about you, Kari? Tell I me mean, something about yourself. Well, <laughs> as a once upon a time photographer, you know that I've covered Lollapalooza for like four or five years in a row. This will be the first year. I'm not covering it in a long time. And I've been keeping up with Music Fest culture, I guess. And mm-hmm. it's alarming. <laughs> like there are um, this weekend or I guess last weekend now. um, hundreds of millions of thousands of myriads of people in Miami for Rolling yeah. Loud. And yeah. it is terrifying. Yeah. It is terrifying. And I saw, I think the mayor of Miami was like, everyone be safe. There are vaccine booths throughout the festival. Oh girl that ain't how vaccines work <laughs> what is going on and yeah what does that mean so if i'm from chicago and i come i can get a vaccine and then how did you get here are you getting back on a plane and taking your diseases back to your home of course you are maybe they're only giving out the johnson and johnson oh yeah do you really never mind i ain't gonna say nothing <laughs> so uh, i got issues with johnson and johnson but that's fine so I'm feeling like man you know it's beautiful outside I am about to go to the beach after we record are you coming by the way to the beach Uh, pass (laughs) Okay. today I love the beach but I have to
1: pass this week
0: well I feel like Chicago's beaches are underrated um I'm going we always go to the beach as much as we can and um I'm not gonna do the festival circuit but I get it. Like people are eager to get back to normal, but mm-hmm. we got to be careful. Anyway, I sound like an auntie. Um, Moving on to our theme of the week. Well, this week, readers, we're not going to have a theme of the week because our book is going to be a discussion between Alexis and myself. Is that correct, Alexis?
1: Yeah, pretty much. After I give you the intro, the historical
0: information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK, well, then why don't we take a quick break and we'll go straight into some author context how does that sound sounds great all right let's go Can you please give us some background on our author Yaba Blay? I love that name Yaba Blay, and perhaps her inspiration for creating "One Drop," shifting the lens on race. Okay, so uh, Dr. Yaba Blay is a
1: Ghanaian American born, um, is Ghanaian American born and raised in New Orleans. She earned a Master of Arts and PhD in African American Studies with distinction, and a graduate certificate in Women's Studies from. Temple University. She also holds a Master's of Education and Counseling Psychology from the University of New Orleans. Dr. Yarba Blay is a scholar activist, public speaker and cultural consultant whose scholarship work and practice centers on the lived experiences of Black women and girls with a particular focus on identity, body politics and beauty practices. She's launched several viral campaigns including um, locks of love, um, hashtag pretty period, hashtag professional black girl, hashtag pretty period highlights dark skinned women and hashtag professional black girl highlights black girls who take being a black girl very seriously to professional levels. In fact, in 2012, Dr. Blaze served as a producer on CNN's television doctor- documentary, Who is Black in America? Do you remember that? I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, She's appeared on major networks, been featured in magazines. Her commentary is um, featured in a a permanent installation exhibit in the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, A Changing America 1968 and Beyond. One Drop Shifting the Lens on Race was published in 2021, um, but I think she started the work back in 2011 yeah, she is widely respected as one of the foremost thought leaders on um, Black racial identity, colorism, and beauty politics. She's globally sought-after speaker and consultant, and she's spoken at Spelman, Harvard, New York University. She started this, wrote this, or excuse me, yeah, started her research after she was on a panel with Rosa Clemente. And Rosa identified as a Black...
0: Puerto Rican, no? Lat- Latina?
1: Yeah, and Rosa identified as a Black... Puerto Rican and it distracted Dr. Blay to the point of wanting to learn more. So that began that her dive into the one drop.
0: Yeah. And I mean, this book was first published in February of 2021. So just this year, Mm -hmm. and I don't show any um, copyrights that precedes that time. So I think I'm not sure if this research just took so long. She is interviewing Uh, Real life people having Mm -hmm. their uh, portrait taken in a way where they feel best represented. And she considers this word collaborative in that her subjects were like editors of it. Also, they were able to edit their story. Usually your subject doesn't get to see the final result until it's published. She didn't Mm -hmm. want it to be that way because it is so personal. Um, So it talks about the self identity of everyone featured in this book. So it was important to her that they were able to self edit their words. Right. Um, also. So maybe that just took long, but um, yeah, this has been a few years in the the making.
1: Anything else you wanted to share?
0: I thought it was cool that as she was distracted, she says by um, this woman identifying as a black person, but also Puerto Rican. She didn't allow that to, uh, Make her even more resolved in whatever she believed she was uh, willing to not confront and question, but open a dialogue with this woman. And then that made her curious. She has this curiosity that I like about um, society uh, that I thought was really cool and is very rare. There were some. one star reviews I saw in Goodreads where people were upset that she approached this book in the context of a black woman interviewing other black people. They thought that she should interview some people of mixed race uh, that identified as white. However, she did the work. <laughs> and so if, if um, anyone else wants to make a book about people who identify as white, um, but are of mixed race, or if she even wants to do that in the future, fine. But this book doesn't have to be all things um Mm -hmm. that's a little pet peeve of mine instead of doing the work on your own and then some people felt too like this should have been written by a mixed race person okay well it can be this subject is um not without its nuance and definitely the mantle can be taken up again by anyone but she did this research and um you know put some thought into it so we can just accept that for what it is in this little book in this one book i should say Well, thank you for that, Alexis. Now, can you please give us a no-spoilers brief synopsis of the book? Sure. Dr.
1: Blay wants us to examine our perceptions of Blackness. So we start with the beginning and the end of the one-drop rule. Then dive into the personal stories of our contributors to find Blackness ranging from South Africa to the Netherlands, from the U.S. to Brazil. Kari. Who do you think would enjoy reading this book?
0: This discussion has been done to death um, regarding who is black, what is black. However, if you are interested in how people identify themselves and why, um, then I think you'd be interested in this book. It's not judging anyone. It's letting people say, Hey, I identify as this and this is why I do. And to me, that, provides context that's often missing from this conversation. Usually yeah. there is an expert that's like, well, because of history, this means this. Right. Um, but this is saying, well, maybe we've outgrown that history because this is now how a plethora of people throughout the diaspora is, are defining themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should look at that and, and ask ourselves if we are holding on to racist mm, philosophy. So, yeah, if you're interested in a look, new look at the same conversation, then I think this book is for you. And Alexis, what were your first thoughts of One Drop Shifting the Lens on race?
1: Uh, let me just say first that I remember one time, a very long time ago, when we were talking about somebody of mixed race and I said, they're black. And you said, how do you know? And I said, because of the One Drop rule. But your response always made me question my response. So, I was interested in reading this book because Dr. Blay on her professional black girl IG page um, would often post Meghan Markle and people would say she's not black. You need to stop posting her. And Dr. Blay always pushed back. So I I wanted to see her thoughts when she talked about releasing her book. I wanted to see her thoughts. Um, Not that I felt one way or the other about it. I just wanted to see her thoughts.
0: Yeah, you were intrigued by this dialogue she was conducting with um, folks on social media. And you wanted Mm -hmm. to know clearly from her own words, what was she thinking? She's a doctor. She's organized her thoughts. What are those thoughts? Mm -hmm. And you give me a lot more credit than I deserve. Uh, But we'll talk (laughs) about that later. (laughs) All right. Well, then, without further ado, are you ready for a deep dive into One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race by Yaba Blay? Spoiler filled, if that can even be a thing.
1: Yeah, and so I want to say it'll have spoilers and that we're going to talk about the history, but the history is researchable. That's like public information. The spoilers are when we talk about the actual stories of the people. And I think we're going to limit those stories and then have an um, overall conversation about the book. Okay, sounds good. I'm ready. So in 1977, Susie um, Glory Phipps And her husband started planning a vacation to South America. And in order to apply for the passports needed to travel, Susie wrote to the Louisiana Bureau of Vital Records for a copy of her birth certificate. And we've been here before. But lo and behold, dear Susie found out her certificate identified her as a colored child born to colored parents.
0: <gasps> and this was a woman that had lived her entire race white in a white world. Yes. So this was shocking, you Absolutely guys. Absolutely shocked. She was shocked. So throw back to uh White Like Her, check out that episode. Okay. Yeah.
1: So Susie and her six <laughs> siblings began an unsuccessful five-year, $20,000 court battle to change the race classification on their birth certificates from color to white. And the state's 1970 racial classification um, statute declared unconstitutional. So they wanted the statute declared unconstitutional and they wanted their classification changed to white because as Kari said, they had all grown up white. They only know whiteness. The law that they were trying to get changed Said in signifying race, a person having one thirty second or less of Negro blood shall not be deemed described or designated by any public official in the state of Louisiana as colored mulatto, a black Negro grift an Afro-American, a quadroon, a, a color person or a person of color. So that's the law they want to change. Geologists were hired by the state to determine and they determined that Susie had three thirty second Negro blood. OK, her four great grandmother, four greats, was a black woman who was enslaved by a French Louisiana planner named Joseph Gregory Galore. Until the time of her birth in 1934, her ancestors were classified as quadroons, mulattoes, and colored. One of her first cousins testified that Susie's father was a colored man, just like the rest of them. No matter how white Susie lived, she lost big. And even though the state repealed the statute of racial classification that same year, they did not make it retroactive. Susie is still
0: legally black. There's yeah, a she felt like she lost that case. I'm like, mm-hmm. you lost, but you black. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> there is a paragraph Sound in am like you won to me. Okay, go ahead. That asks, what exactly
1: is blackness? What does it mean to be black? Is blackness a matter of biology or consciousness? Who determines who is black and who is not? The state, the society, or the individual? Who is black, who is not? Who cares? In the U.S., historically, a black person is defined as any person with any known black ancestry. And that's where we come to the one drop rule, meaning that one single solitary drop of black blood is enough to render a person black. Therefore, a person with any trace of black ancestry, however small or invisible, cannot be considered white unless that person has other non-white ancestry that they can claim, they must be considered black. And this was big in Virginia. The one drop rule became a legal reality in the state of Virginia in 1705. And by 1910, it was the law of the land in almost all the Southern US states. This rule functioned to protect and preserve white racial purity. Back then you were either black or white, period no in-between the one drop rule is american no other nation relies on this formula under colonial enslavement blackness prototypical or phenotypical african features such as the dark skin a broad nose tightly cold hair were the markers of inferiority if you were white you were free if you were black you were enslaved Early on, there were more blacks than whites. And while interracial relations were discouraged and publicly punished, it was extremely commonplace. Whites were afraid of losing control over the enslaved population. And under those fears were psychological fears. In order to maintain white supremacy, whiteness needed to remain pure. They believed that race mixing led to lower quality humans And threatened the survival of the white race. Blackness was considered a contaminant, one poisonous enough to taint and cripple the entire gene pool. Maintaining that color line had to be unquestionably clear. There were miscegenation laws. And these laws defined marriage and sometimes sex between the races as criminal. Mm -hmm. But these laws were an attempt to police the behavior of whites. In traditional English common law, it held that children take the state of their father. However, laws were changed frequently to maintain white supremacy. So now if a white man impregnated a black woman, the law took him off the hook. He didn't have to support, even claim that child. If the mother was his property, he gained an additional property, another source of labor and income.
0: So this was really eye-opening to me. Um, We've talked about how uh, race only came after the racism. So people wanted a way to categorize and dominate others. And so they created race and defined uh, what makes what, what, and in all of those actual laws and legislation, um, they decided that a child would always take on the,
1: in the The legislation, they defined,
0: yeah, that the child would always take on the slavery status of the mother. That means that if a white landowner rapes, There, I'm sorry to use that word. If a white landowner sexually assaults a black woman and that black woman produces a child, he is able to say that child is now also my property. But if a white woman were to be impregnated by a black man, let's say voluntarily, that black child all of a sudden does not get the status of the mother as far as slavery is concerned. That child would also be considered a slave. So it bent just for the patriarchal like benefit. And it was, uh, mm-hmm. go ahead, go ahead. Um, I just thought that was very, uh, not that we didn't already know that before this type of evilness to be so blatant is pretty shocking. Mm-hmm.
1: And so it it's kind of um sanctioned the sexual abuse of enslaved women.
0: I was going to say it allowed owners to even have like evil games that they would play with the neighboring landowner um who can make more property? Who can impregnate more slaves to build up their property and That's make gross. more money? That's gross, yeah. and it's it's a situation that dehumanizes not just the victim but also the one victimizing. Now they're both treated like animals. And it's one thing to decide you want to be treated like an animal. You want to be the buck, the breeder. But then to do something like that to another person, it's just evil. It's Mm -hmm. just evil. This also allowed them to limit access to
1: privilege and concentrate white power. Uh, During this antebellum period, this group of people, this mixed race people, they're described um, as white and black are now called by the term mulatto. And that's taken from the um, Portuguese and Spanish term meaning um, young Mm -hmm. mule." Yes. Yeah, a mule, mule? Um,
0: the mix between a horse and a donkey.
1: So, since Virginia was, quote, swarming with mulattoes, end quote, this forced the state to quickly put laws in place to address the problems it posed. The color line was blurring. There was no longer a clear delineation between black and white. So Virginia became the first state to outline a formulaic definition of race in its ban against interracial marriage. In 1705, it defined a Negro as the child, grandchild or great grandchild of a Negro or anyone who was at least one eighth Negro, making mulattoes black, And other southern states quickly adopted this definition well into the 20th century. Texas said anyone with any blood of the African race in their veins is black. No matter how white you appear, if you have a drop of black blood, you are considered black and they're treated accordingly. Now, let's talk about New Orleans. We talked about this a little bit in the book um, by Gail Lukasik, White Like Her. Mm -hmm. New Orleans had that multi-tier system developed where whites held the highest status and blacks, of course, the lowest. And then there were the free people of color, aka Creoles of color. They held this intermediate or kind of a buffer position, and they enjoyed privileges of freedom since the beginning of French rule in 1718. The term Creole is a Latin word meaning to beget or create, and the Creoles were a result of generations of intermixing between Europeans, French and Spanish, Africans, enslaved and free and indigenous people. And unlike other regions of the country in colonial uh, Louisiana, amalgamation was widespread, tolerated, sometimes encouraged, and thus whites rejected, whites in New Orleans that is, the one-drop rule. Even though Creoles weren't given the privileges afforded whites, they were given more privileges than Blacks. Creoles were presumed free. Blacks were not. And you see where I'm going with this, right? Mm -hmm. Division, upholding of white supremacy. Having white ancestry was socially advantageous, creating a division between the blacks and the Creoles. Creoles were rare to believe they were superior to blacks. There were even laws that kept Creoles and blacks separated. Creoles were encouraged to adhere to the color line of privilege. In New Orleans, Creoles made up a significant portion of the city's doctors, lawyers, businessmen, and other educated professionals. Some even owned their own slaves. Creoles went to great lengths to maintain the race by even preserving or lightening the skin color of their descendants. Creole women and black women saw it advantageous to have relationships with white men, even though they couldn't marry them, and it was against the law. So prior to 1864, the term used was amalgamation. During the 1864 presidential election, it was decided that a term needed to specifically refer to the mixing of races. So they combined a term, a Latin term meaning to mix with genus, meaning race or stock, and created a term that sounded more scientific and Yeah, more this ominous. is like, yeah, studied in labs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and miscegenation yeah. sounded like more like a mistaken mixture or, or was unnatural. Mm-hmm. And so they could use that. And then they started enforcing anti-miscegenation laws. Then states started adopting the one-drop rule across the entire southern region. And guess who was now out of their privileged spot?
0: The Creoles.
1: Yeah, you guessed it. That elite middle class of people, the Creoles, and all other associated titles. And by
0: that, I mean they got their property taken. Some were even enslaved. This is a drastic upheaval of a whole group of people. Essentially a race of people. A race of people, yeah. This is like a mini genocide where people are being added to the larger genocide that's already going on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Creoles look down on um, a lot of Negroes or black people, but they're all victims of white supremacy. And it's like sad and um, unfair, unjust all around.
1: Yeah. And so now rather than be considered black, they had to decide whether they went to be white passing.
0: And Why that might mean yeah. never seeing your family again in a culture that is very family centric. You either avail yourselves to the privilege of society by turning your back on your family, maybe even with your family's consent. Like right. go and live a, a great life as a white person um, because you could l- you look white or you choose to suffer with uh, the people, the common people, the black people. Yeah.
1: It wasn't an easy decision. So no. I imagine there's quite a few people out there like uh, Gail Lukasik who d- are not aware of their um, strand of black. In their yeah, veins. because
0: their ancestors were passing. Mm-hmm.
1: I thought this was interesting and I, I'd never heard it before, but the one drop ideology of blackness was at the crux of many of the arguments against enslavement. And here's why. There were white appearing children that were enslaved. Yeah. So white abolitionists, Began a, a photographic propaganda campaign that showed that these white children being born into enslavement were being sold, and from that angle, southern slavery was a threat to the freedom of all white people because if these white appearing children
0: could be enslaved, so too could any other seemingly white person. Yeah, people really um been into this, but essentially these were white slaves because the landowner um. Uh, sexual assault of slave women was so prevalent that there were a lot of mixed children to the point where if a slave owner is now assaulting someone who's of mixed race their children look white Mm -hmm. so so people would come over to the plantation like guests and ask oh i didn't know you had another daughter and the um wife would have to go oh no that's one of the slave children and then people go, oh, oh, <laughs> I know your life. Mm-hmm. So it was embarrassing. Yeah. Um, And then the abolitionists were like, well, these are essentially white children now and they're enslaved. Maybe we can get people to give up on slavery by showing them uh, these white children. I don't think there was any real threat that now white people are going to start enslaving each other. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, well, I guess if you didn't like, like
0: somebody, you could, right? You could just no, create a No, because that person could go, well, these are my parents and these are my grandparents. You know what I mean?
1: Well, you could. You could. But what if a person came into town and they didn't know their background,
0: right? Right. So what I would do as if I wouldn't have been free long because I would have went straight <laughs> to the house of whatever well uh, Wahite person had abused me the most and said, cousin, <laughs> cousin, don't you remember me? And then I would make a scene and go, cousin, please, why are you treating me like this? Mm-hmm. And now everybody going to think, wait, are you colored, uh, Luke? <laughs> <And next thing laughs> is you Luke know, Johnson a colored man? Yup, he is. Next thing That's you know, Luke is saying. enslaved.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so the book then goes on to show these pictures of white appearing enslaved children next to black enslaved children. It don't look good to the white person right (laughs) so to us
0: it don't look good because these are human slaves but to (laughs) white people at the time all they see are the white children Mm -hmm. being enslaved and that's wrong and you know what I can see how this
1: creates a people who are against slavery but that's for self preservation not necessarily because they believe blacks are equal human beings right (laughs) Right. yeah Yeah. so now after slavery was abolished there's some case law that we can look into um whites and blacks found themselves in this newfound competition for jobs. So the need to maintain blacks in the lowest social position and intensified the nation's need to define and categorize them. There's two very significant cases into the case of Plessy v. Ferguson. And this is the United States Supreme Court's ruling that defined blackness. They didn't, it, it, I don't think that was their intent. And it advanced the separation, separate but equal doctrine. Um, In this case, Homer Adolph um, Plessy was white passing and wanted to be allowed to ride in the white train car. This kind of makes me think of the Rosa Parks, but with train cars and Mm -hmm. yet still different. The Plessy wanted to fight racial categorization. However, constrained by the racial concepts of the time, their argument focused excessively on whether or not. Plessy should be categorized as black given his white appearance. Thus, Plessy's attorneys accepted race as a category at the same time as they argued the law ought not use race as a basis for determined citizens' rights. The Supreme Court upheld the lower court's decision and said the separate but equal was constitutional and added a a judicial note to state a Negro or black is any person with any black ancestry. This is now on law law books. So, One need not look black in order to be considered black. And the Supreme Court, in effect, sanctioned the one-drop rule. By 1925, almost every state has some form of one-drop law on the books. And if you notice, I mentioned previously that the southern states were adopting these rules, but now we're in 1925 and it's no longer limited to the southern states. It's really spreading. And It's federal law. Mm -hmm. And as the one-drop reality set in... It became, um, excuse me, as the one drop reality set into American consciousness, race relations shifted in 1958. There's a new case, the second case, Richard Loving, a white man, married Mildred Jeter, a woman of black and Native American descent. It was legal for them to marry in Washington, D.C., illegal in Virginia. The Lovings were arrested and pled guilty. They bargained that they would receive no jail time if they left the state for at least 25 years. After eight years and several lawsuits, their case reached the Supreme Court, which unanimously overturned their convictions. And in the ruling, the Supreme Court concluded that anti-miscegenation and the one-drop rule was unconstitutional. Louisiana was the last to repeal this law on racial classification, which they did in 1983. And Alabama was the last (laughs) state to repeal its law. When did they
0: do that? (laughs) Interracial marriage. Yesterday.
1: (laughs) In 2000, Alabama in 2000. Interracial marriage was against the law. So it's the end of the one drop rule. The multiracial population in the U.S. has grown dramatically with with the projection that by 2050, one in five Americans may identify as multiracial. The book explores the extent to which historical definitions of race continue to shape contemporary racial identities and lived experiences of racial difference, particularly among those whom the legacy of the one drop rule perceptibly lingers. But before we discuss some personal stories, let's talk a, a bit about other countries. In many places, any one drop of something else is enough to render that person something else. Let's talk about Latin America they saw whiteness as cleansing and purifying. So they saw race mixing as diluting the population. So they attempted to whiten their population via a political agenda that encouraged individuals to reproduce with those lighter or whiter than themselves.
0: Yeah, so whereas in the States, um, the white race was widely considered by the ruling class to be pure already. And we want to keep out any mixture Because we don't want the milk to be unclean. It must remain pristine white patrician. Mm -hmm. Um, In other parts of the world and throughout some islands, the idea was we'll bring in white people because that'll help purify your race. And this fit the agenda of um, transient white men who were coming in as sailors or as merchants and who weren't going to stay long. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. their political agenda was, well, we want to do whatever we want with the women when we're here. Mm -hmm. Um, So mix with us because we're going to help clean your race. Mm. And um, yeah. And, you know, your uh, lighter children will have some privileges and who doesn't want their children to have privileges? Um, So, yeah. yeah, that's the juxtaposition that she described. Well, I thought.
1: Yeah, um, so it, uh, Kari talks about the Caribbean a little bit. And um, then there's also within the Caribbean, the, the social and um, political and economic power is concentrated among those who are mixed. So color and class are inextricably linked. Um, there's discriminatory uh, discriminatory treatment based on skin skin tone, Um, color-coded social structures exist in Trinidad and Tobago um, and and Guyana um, where they have identifiers such as Cooley which is a person of East Indian descent a Creole who is a local person a native Um, a Dougla which is a person of mixed African and East Indian descent descent and then Chinese someone of Asian descent and these Identifiers are based on phenotypical appearances um, rather than their genetic makeup. So those who appear to be primarily African descent again are at the bottom of the social hierarchy.
0: Yeah, she describes how in um, on the continent of Africa, oftentimes if you look black, you're black. There's no there are very few people who identify as mixed race. It's widely um, acceptable to identify as a whole instead of a part. So if you look white you are white and if you look black you are black yeah
1: and that's that's really it but then if you go into south africa then you you through the apartheid um regime there's the categories everybody's categorized and that mixedness um had that hierarchy still yeah and there
0: are great details on how that hierarchy came to exist and what it looked like mm-hmm. uh, for The people who live there in our episode, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Go back and listen to that show. It's great. So now we have a bit of
1: history and understanding. Let's dive into personal stories. Dr. Blay um, did a series of interviews with 70 individuals representing 25 different countries. The majority live in the U.S. Eight reside in Brazil, Canada, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. Her final pool of contributors consisted of 34 women and 24 men who ranged from 21 to 103 years old. They responded to the following questions. How do you identify racially, culturally? Upon meeting you for the first po- time, what do people usually assume about your identity? Do people question your blackness? What is it about you that causes people to question your identity? Um, has your skin color or... Um, Racial identity affected your ability to form, maintain social relationships. Many people, and the final question is, many people assume that with light skin comes benefits. What benefits do you realize or have you experienced similarly? What liabilities, disadvantages have you realized or experienced? Although contributors use a variety of terms to self-identify, they all see themselves as part of a larger racial and cultural group generally referred to as black people. Dr. Blay wants us to envision multiple possibilities for blackness above and beyond the one drop rule. Kari, are there personal stories that stand out to you that you'd like to share?
0: Yeah. Um, so she, this, she consider, considers this, like we said, a collaborative work and um, one of her main contributors or collaborators, partners on this project uh, was the photographer that shot the, um, the subjects being interviewed. Her name is Noel. Noelle. And Noelle considers herself Haitian. Um, I thought this was really interesting Mm -hmm. because I have um, Haitian people in my world who I love and um, they don't look like her. (laughs) Um, She looks to me like a Latina woman. However, her father was of uh, mixed race. He was Haitian black and his mom or his dad was Haitian black and his mom was, um, I think, German. German and Haitian. And then um, her, her, so he married a French woman, I think. Mm -hmm. So she has mixed blood, but it includes Haitian blood. And, you know, that's a culture that she identifies with. And so she calls herself Haitian. And that often shocks people. She is often in a situation where strangers are politely asking her to prove her ethnicity because she looks Latina. One quote from her that I'd like to read directly from the book. Uh, goes a little something like this. She says, being Haitian has always been an important part of my identity. But for me, the path to understanding what it means to be Haitian has been complicated. In the Haitian context, it seems absurd for me to identify as black, especially since I don't look like what they would consider black, which is what the majority of the Haitian population looks like. Like my father, I am considered mulatto. And given the history of colonialism as well as colonials violence in Haiti, my skin color is associated with privilege. end quote. There are two words in this, um in this section that stuck out to me and it's when she said I don't look like what they would consider black and that really emphasizes how race in itself is just a social construct which we say all the time Mm -hmm. but it's true it has no scientific backing it's all about perception and perception is relative Mm -hmm. so how can you have laws based on these on something that's not concrete yeah. and unchanging
1: yeah that's like though in south africa when they were making these um, rules for apartheid it was just so
0: <laughs> nonsensical yeah. arbitrary yeah it reminds me too of gail um, lucasic's uh, example where some in her family were born black and died white mm-hmm. now that is insane mm-hmm. so it just shows that it makes no sense also um Dodd, o'brien I've always she looks like a Latina woman to me. She does have some edges that makes me think she's a sister. <laughs> However, she is um she is Latina. She is Black, she considers herself black. Her dad is white and Australian, and her mom is Afro Cuban. She also has a couple of points that I'd like to bring out. First of all, she um, gives the example of Britney Spears, who um, may have an embarrassing situation why people do not say, Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed for us. Can you believe what Britney is doing to us? Um, because Every white person does not represent the white race, whereas with black people, it's often said within our communities and outside of it. Wow. Look at what that black person did. Why are black people always doing that? And it leads to a situation where you don't feel free to be yourself Mm -hmm. in all the nuance that um, makes up your personality because you have to fit in the category that's defined for you by people of your race and people outside of your race based on their perceptions and their ideas. Um, and that's no way to live. Uh, She also uh, has a quote here that I like. She says, technically, I'm mixed. I have one parent who's black. I have one parent who's white. I identify as black. I had a good friend in college who on paper had the same racial makeup as I did. Her dad was black. Her mom was white. A girl who looks like me. And people would say, oh, you're black. And she'd be like, nope, absolutely not. I never felt like it was up to me to take it a step further and say, well, you're denying your... Mm. I'm sorry. I generally don't care. My thing is, if you say so, you look black to me. But if that's (laughs) going to be your thing, okay. (laughs) I identified so much with that quote. um, And we'll talk about this more um, later in the episode. But I really picked that out. That stuck with me because I have been in that position where, girl, you black. I've definitely said that to people. Mm. Girl, you black. Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. This is a cool club to be a part of and you have entrance. Why are you denying it? What is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. That's the subtext. Um, and then she also talks about how her children look white, but she tells them that they're black and that's mm-hmm. her right as a parent. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, oh, they talked yeah. about that with Holly Berry as well, right? hmm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Sully Dodge children are multiracial, but um, because their grandmother's black, And because their mother identifies as black, they're black. And that makes sense to me. Um, Or at least it did at one time. And then um, lastly, I want to talk about Christina Robinson, who identifies not just as black, but black from Louisiana. Mm. And I just want to reiterate that we're talking in the context of race and not ethnicity. She identifies her race as black from Louisiana. And it makes me think of how Beyonce loves to say she's Creole. Mm. And people Mm. have a problem with that because it feels like you are harking back to this time historically when Creoles thought they were better than black people and you're trying to say you're better but the truth is creoles have a culture that is unique and specific to um, creole people from louisiana and you don't have to blend that with black people you can be proud of both your blackness your creoleness mm -hmm. and whatever else uh, whether it be french or spanish uh, which is common with creole Mm -hmm. people Um, that all brings different histories, different foods, different forms of music that don't have to just disappear in the comfortable category of black. You know, yeah. does that make absolutely. sense? Absolutely. And so Christina um, is one of these people who, to me, she looks like she could be maybe Latina, maybe Native American, but she is black from Louisiana. She is Creole and she's a mixed race person who um, does not neatly fit into categories. So I really liked her story and how she identifies. Um, so she says, just like white folks have to understand and accept what r- white privilege is, I have to accept that gradations and skin color also matter. We just have to be honest. No matter what color you are on the spectrum of blackness, there is a difference in the way we are treated in life. And that is so true. Um, I said- so I, I liked her. Example. I'm sorry, mm-hmm.
1: It was another person that I'm um, kind of said that, oh, I think it was Rosa Clemente um, in her story. She said, I am identifying as a black Puerto Rican. However, I know that I am not experiencing what a dark skinned black person is experiencing. And I right. acknowledge that I'm not going to fight you toe to toe about that. But I'm going to be black. You could be black. But I, I will never claim to understand your experience what you're going yes. through
0: and that's the same in uh, black americans lighter skinned black americans may have a different experience than darker skinned black americans you cannot deny that because someone says they went through this and you didn't that they are wrong or they're seeing it in the wrong way no respect people's insight into their own yeah. lives <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so so thank you for sharing that kari let's take a quick break before we
1: get into our um final verdict and recommendation. Okay. Sounds good. And welcome back. So, Kari, yes. what is your final verdict and would you recommend this book?
0: Um. So there is a Goodreads reviewer who gave it a one star review. And I just want to say uh, I want to quote her quickly. She says the one drop rule doesn't fully make sense outside of the United States. So I don't see why this relic of American slavery should be a chosen basis of a global black identity. And I want to address that quickly. End quote, by the way, I want to address uh, what she said quickly. Um, some people and I'm not saying her, but some people feel like um, Racism died with slavery, uh-huh. but the residual effects of what this did to a people and to a country, both whites and blacks in the country live on even today. Mm-hmm. So beyond slavery, beyond Jim Crow, I mean, we just talked about how interracial marriage was uh, made legal in Alabama in 2000, uh, 21 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is um A sign of how the ruling classes, and I mean black and white people in positions of power, uh, see the history of this country. Either it's not worth addressing, let's just ignore it. And a lot of laws um, are not taken off the books because of that, because people don't think it's worth the time to address. It's highly unlikely you're going to be arrested in Alabama in 1995 because you are part of a, a mixed race couple. However, The fact that that was law um, says something about the legislative practice overall of the state and of the country. You have to you have to accept that at least. Um, So, no, this book does not address how every black person across the world sees themselves. It's specifically talking about how um, black Americans see themselves in the context of historically how black people have been treated in this country. And I think when it does touch on um, Caribbean blackness, when it touches even on African blackness, it's not thorough because that's not what this book is about. So it gives you just a bit of that history. Um, And yeah, if you're looking for just an overall understanding of how black people across the world see themselves and why, I don't know what book is going to give that to you.
1: And, And so if I could add, She specifically talks about how the um, the one drop rule is a very American thinking that she's made it clear hasn't gone away, but it has affected so many people. She even talks about how people who come from other countries are affected by that one drop
0: rule when they come here. But I get it. I get it. I remember um, visiting. I used to go to Canada semi-often. And I remember um, meeting friends for the first time. And they're like, well, what's your background? I'd say I'm black. Yeah, but what are you? Mm -hmm. And I get that. I do get it. So there was a point in America when the one drop rule was used to categorize and control people. But somehow along the way, it became a test for entrance into like an exclusive club that had created things and done things the world's never seen. And I'm a member of that club. And the club wouldn't be exclusive if just everyone could be in it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You understand? Or could just join it when it felt convenient. So club entrance requires a cost. And once you're in, you can say, look what I did. Look what my people did. Look what my parents did. Despite everything that happened to us, look what we created, look what we became and look who we are. Wow. I'm still very much enjoying being a member of that club. (laughs) But I realized that this one drop rule is racist. It's racist. And it doesn't make sense for me as a black woman Mm -hmm. to, yeah, to predicate it. So you asked me what I thought of this book. Listen. I've always identified as black American, not as my race, but as my ethnicity. And I explain that as best as I can in our black card episode. So just like some people consider themselves Polish, German or Italian, I identify as black American, the descendant of slaves who created a new hybrid culture and way of living that's like emulated all over the world. That's who I am. Racially, I too have always identified as black. That's different than who I am ethnically. Um, racially, I've always identified as Black, but I haven't always seen other Black people as Black like me. This mm. book and other books uh, we've read, including Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds, has made me redefine my identity and how I see the world, mm. honestly. what you say? There's. There's a viral clip of Arsenio Hall talking to Trevor Noah, where Trevor describes his connection throughout the diaspora, um, the African diaspora, as it pertains to our black people's interactions with law enforcement. Like you might not yeah. see me as black, but when we talk about police, we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um And so he's like, right away, I'm like, but how you see yourself is defined by your oppression. (laughs) Like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. (laughs) I get it. But that's not how that's not the measure that I want to use to say who I am and to see who I am by how badly I'm treated in society. In the end, I think it just comes to mind in my business. It's not my job in my heart and especially not openly to police the identity of others. I'm still not down with everyone saying the n-word or claiming the history that is mine. What about for themselves. Rachel Dolezal? Stop it! <laughs> no, listen. Let's be within reason. <laughs> let's be within reason. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, I doubt I'll ever meet her, so I'm not going to allow her and her um mm, foolishness to take up any t- any Space. even fraction of my brain. That's none of my business. Um so yeah, I do feel somewhat of a re- release in a way. I no longer feel like the gatekeeper that I think I've oh. quietly you know taken up as a role for myself. Oh, that's interesting. Um you know, I don't know where I got that from. Even when I was little. It's not from my parents, it's not from my friends, but anyway, I'm letting that responsibility go. Um it's not my job to like say who's black or who's not I know what I am but what you identify is it's your business Mm -hmm. it's your business unless we're at a concert and you're trying to say the n-word I guess that's when it becomes important take that role back up again yeah
1: wait up hold on a second I'm gonna have to sort (laughs) through um which wait oh wait Ma'am, sir, I'm going to have you. are you not a black. <laughs> Remove that from
0: your lingo because your you security. are not. <laughs> um, and then Alexis, when I think of like my heroes and those I want to. Emulate, they're always the underdog. So, you know, Moses denied the comforts of a royal life in order to suffer with God's people. And I think that there has always been a subconscious reasoning in my heart that privilege always comes with a a level Mm. of like ungodly evil. And (laughs) to be denied rights and privilege by society, by the majority, is nothing more than a sign of purity. Mm. And like, I think I'm using this reasoning too much in, in okay, another example. Do you know who Hannah Brofman is? Is She's like a DJ, influencer, yeah. Mm -mm, I don't think so. Well, she had tweeted once, I'm a black woman, I am a white woman. And then she like was crying on the internet. And I thought she was the most delusional person in the world (laughs) because you can't have it both ways. You can't have the privilege and still be a part of the light of what's right. But truthfully, she... Uh, I mean, she ain't a white woman, but that's because oh, the said. rules of race were because she's mixed race. Okay. So she sees herself as a whole of both races. But like mathematically that's impossible. But also more importantly, race was constructed and maintained with the goal of preserving white pre- supremacy. And I don't want to have anything to do with that. So <sighs> if she wants to say she's white, if anyone wants to say she's white, that's none of my business. <laughs> um, if you if I see you as a black woman, And this is what I love so much about Soledad's um, quote and how her thinking is, whatever, that's not my mantle to take up. That is not my war to fight. I am black. I'm part of um, the African and black diaspora. I am black American ethnically, but who you are isn't for me to define. And this book helped me put a period on that thought. And so in that way, I appreciate it. Also, this is a book you have to read. There's no audio version and it makes a great coffee table book. So I'd recommend it. And thank you for making me buy it. What about you after all of that? And I hope that made sense. I know I was all over the place. Y'all tell What her did you think? In the comments, if
1: you disagree or you feel yeah, some type of way you, about what exactly. she's saying, that is that woman's opinion. Okay. That's her opinion on that. <laughs>
0: Wait, me? Yeah, you. Say your opinion. That's your right. opinion. Yes, so, yes. And you're entitled to it. So so what do you think of one job? And would you recommend it? You know, the, the first time,
1: I remember the first time I met a woman and she was white looking, white looking. And I met her through a friend and um, she, I was just a, a teenager at the time. And this woman had to be like 40 or something. And she made a point. I didn't ask her. She made a point to tell me she was black. I was like, oh sure,
0: okay. Yeah. If you say so.
1: <laughs> if you
0: say so. <laughs> right.
1: I don't know her history. I didn't know. I mean, I was it was just that one moment. But my friend made sure she told me in advance that the woman says she's black. You know, don't pay her no attention. That's what the woman says. But what I like about this is people's stories. I love reading people's stories and because you can't take that away from them. That's Mm-mm. that's what their experience is. And you don't have the right to. You don't. You don't. So I just like hearing them. I like to see how um, mixed race people... Um, make their decisions about who they are, who they decide to be, who they decide to identify as. That's why I appreciate it. Um, and you just mentioned it, the Black Howard book, because it was his his story to tell. Like you said, it's a nice big coffee table book. You see these beautiful pictures of these people and then you see their story and you get to. Yeah,
0: you see their photo and you can. Um, deciding your heart oh this ain't really a black person this ain't really right. you know whatever and then you read their story and you're like yes. wow who am I to say who exactly. they are exactly <laughs> and that's how yeah. each story
1: felt to me cause you can look at them but and then think about where your that person ain't black where's that coming from mm-hmm. what is the origin of that and we have it cause that one drop mm-hmm. rule is inherent is in us because that is what we learned and so you have to think about
0: um, what are you really doing when you t- when you tell people or decide, even in your heart, in silently, your heart silently, whether someone's black or white? Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Yeah. You're predicating this one drop rule. Mm-hmm. You're saying that this rule still has a hold on my life and a place in society. Yeah. And we're kind of like... Um, I mean, I love being black. It's lit. And I don't think I'm ever going to get to the point where I'm like, well, I don't identify as anything racially. But in saying that, I have to also recognize that race is a construct used to um, from, um cement white supremacy. Yeah. And I'm not down with that. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to tell yeah. you. I'm black. I mean, me, me,
1: worry about yourself. Like me, like me, (laughs) right. (laughs) (laughs) Worry about yourself. Uh, Worry about yourself. So I enjoyed it. Definitely would recommend it. It's got, um, it's got great information, details. I like how it expanded the New Orleans um, talk. I know, um, Gail Lukasik went into great detail, but, I was like, oh, my God, this is so hard to read. But reading. I
0: still think that was ridiculous. But Blake <laughs>
1: having explained it. I get it. I get it now. I get it more than when I read um, Gals because Gals was like a yawner when she was explaining it. It was too much. It's more information Girl, than I needed.
0: years, years in um, a limbo of who am I? An identity crisis because there was a Negro in her lineage. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can, that's that's crazy to me. I mean, if you told me that, you know, sat me down and said, Kari, I have to tell you, I think someone white was in <laughs> your one of your ancestors. How would I look denying it or, you know, going crazy about it? Like, oh, that's so gross. But, but what is that it's tie? So gross,
1: to. You know, that's that purity of whiteness, that white supremacy White supremacy is clearly like an overarching thing here. It's exactly so, and that's you
0: know that's that's evil. the machine producing the product, mm-hmm. and there's yeah. no reason for us to maintain this product. But I'm black. <laughs> I just want to be clear on that. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I am black. I I don't care what y'all are. I don't. Hey, listener, thank you for listening to the show. What are you? Okay, great. I don't care. <laughs> I'm black. <laughs> And you like, ain't never gonna take that from me. You can't take that from me. You can't. Logic. You cannot mm-hmm. take it from me. So, yeah. One thing I heard an interview with Yaba Blade uh, also, and she was saying, you know, instead of considering ourselves Black in American um, context, we could be attaching ourselves to this global Blackness. And in that way, we won't feel like the minority because mm. mathematically, we are not the minority. Right. We are the majority worldwide. Um, And I get it. I do get that, but I don't feel connected to um, someone from um, Brazil who identifies as black necessarily. There will sometimes be um, connections in our culture that are cool to see, whether it's the food we eat or the way we um, create art and how that art looks. That is really cool um, how that African lineage has just lived through everything it was up against and has been so tenacious and thrived. Um, But I don't necessarily feel like, you know, you know, I have to feel a familial connection now with every um person that identifies as black. Um, I think I don't w- that's mm-hmm. that um
1: struggle that you're like, I don't want to identify with struggle like that, because even across the diaspora, they we all kind of experience a, a similar
0: struggle. And so is that what she's saying? We should. I don't want to by- be identified by my struggles. Mm hmm yeah no. what y'all think am i thinking the right thing? y'all tell me what y'all think yeah. and what y'all think about what i'm thinking because i'm thinking things i don't know it's very interesting <laughs> so it is very it is well thank you for that alexis what are we reading next week the wedding by dorothy west i think that's a great fiction to dive into after reading something like this, what do you uh, think?
1: One hundred percent agree.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love y'all too, we black don't. and white. I love you, but we black. Uh, if you've enjoyed, what we you- love all the,
1: the races that have been socially constructed (laughs) (laughs) oh okay
0: if you've enjoyed what you just heard tell it we're gonna get canceled (laughs) tell a friend about list society visit listsocietypod.com for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter and until next time you guys read read something. something